From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. We've all witnessed explosive differences in opinion over whether under 40 should be offered the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. This episode, epidemiologist Gideon Morowitz-Katz chats with the Medical Republic reporter Felicity Nelson about why there are no easy answers. Since this podcast was recorded last week, Prime Minister Scott Morrison unveiled a four-point plan to get vaccines in the arms of Australians, with a goal to return to life as normal. But there are yet to be specific dates or vaccination targets to accompany the roadmap. This interview was recorded on Friday, the 2nd of July. Hello, Gid. Welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, Felicity. Good to be here. So, Gid, do you want to introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, sure. So I'm Gideon Myrovitz-Katz. I'm an epidemiologist from the University of Wollongong, and I'm also a blogger and columnist for The Guardian, uh, as well as a few other publications. And you have lots of opinions about what has happened this week, as do I, so I thought we'd, uh, we should get on a, a podcast and chat about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have the uh, dubious honour of being a researcher who's being cited by the federal government uh, for COVID and vaccine advice, which is fun. I, I did a study on the, the risk of COVID mortality by age. That's part of the current uh, decision-making process for the vaccination rollout. And what I wanted to chat to you about was specifically uh, this question of AstraZeneca for under 40s, which, as we all know now, um, the Prime Minister a few days ago opened the floodgate and said that people under the age of 40 could go and ask their GP for an AstraZeneca COVID vaccination, uh, something that Atagi and uh, lots of other health experts have said is not recommended. And, you know, we saw that this caused a huge amount of division this week and almost to a ridiculous degree. (laughs) And what strikes me about this is that the question of whether under 40 should get the AstraZeneca vaccine is just fundamentally an intellectually difficult question. It's quite hard to wrap your head around. And I went and did some research because this affects me personally, (laughs) trying to figure out, you know, is it worth it? And just trying to answer that question on an individual level and a population level is quite hard. So I thought it'd be really great to get an epidemiologist to explain why is it so hard and why do people fall on opposite sides when they start to examine this question? Yeah, I I think it is a very difficult question. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I should also say I have something of a vested interest in the outcome as an epidemiologist who just got his second dose of AstraZeneca this week. So you clearly think it's worth it. Git is under the age of 40, so... (laughs) Yeah, I should say I'm I'm, I'm 30-something, I think is the phrase. Um, (laughs) So talk us through what's the logic. So why would someone fall on, say, the side of, yes, people under the age of 40 should definitely go chat to their GP about getting AstraZeneca? So I think uh, it is, as you say, a very difficult problem. Um, And it's a difficult problem for several reasons. So we know, based on, on my research and other research, that the death rate for COVID-19 and, and the serious hospitalization rate and, and basically the, the course of the disease is very heavily dependent on age. The younger someone is, the less likely they are to have a serious infection and the less likely they are to go to ICU, the less likely they are to die. And that curve is exponential. So someone who is um, 40 is at about a nine to 10 times increased risk of death compared to someone who is 20. Uh, and someone who is 60 is at a thousand times increased risk of death compared to someone who is 20. So it's very significant differences in in your risk from the disease itself uh, based on age. Now, on the other hand, AstraZeneca vaccination um, 
there's also something of a gradient. So younger people tend to be at higher risk of this uh, clotting disorder, TTS, um, that has been identified. Not a, a, an enormous increase, but it's about double for younger people, um, particularly those under the age of 40. And you add to this mix the fact that currently, and for the foreseeable future, Australia doesn't have any risk of a mass outbreak. And when I say that, I'm not saying that there is zero risk, sorry. I shouldn't say it doesn't have any risk. It has a very low risk of the entire of, of widespread COVID-19, particularly because the various state and federal governments have shown um, a great deal of consistency in their desire to keep case numbers down to zero. So when there are outbreaks, all of the governments take measures proportional to keep the COVID cases down to essentially zero. What that means is that the risk of infection for a young person over the next 12 months is low. Um, That's undeniable. Unless all of our governments completely change their policies on COVID-19, it is very unlikely that someone my age or younger is going to be exposed to COVID at all. Well, unless we decide to open the borders, you know, January 2022, which, you know, who knows when that <laughs> announcement's going to come. It could come any day. It could already have come by the time this podcast goes to air. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, sorry, I should specify this is a te- this is ba- the guidance from a Tegi that I'm kind of... Uh, uh, channeling here, um, we could change all of this if we if we changed our policy. If the community decided as a whole that we wanted to reopen our borders and that was worth COVID cases in the community, then we absolutely uh, this this would completely reverse. But based on the assumption that the state and federal governments have shown a great reluctance to have COVID cases in the community, and that um, it is relatively unlikely that younger people will be exposed to the disease, you, you look at the calculus and it, it shows that uh, someone who's aged 20, if they catch COVID, has about a 1 in 20,000 risk of death. Uh, compared to this, the risk, uh, and sorry, a 1 in 20,000 risk of death, and they have, I think it's about a, a, um, a 1 in 2,000 risk of hospitalization. Um, it's roughly 10 times as high risk of hospitalization to the risk of death. Compared to that, the risk of having any blood clot is not insignificant. So in this case, I think it's about one per 50,000 people will have the, uh, this, this TTS. And the challenge here is that TTS is very serious in those people who it occurs in. So if, if you compare one-to-one the risk of COVID-19 infection, so the risk if you're infected with COVID for a 20-year-old to the risk of the AstraZeneca vaccination that we've identified, you find that COVID infection is worse. That is undeniable. For someone who was infected, it would have been better if they had had um, the vaccination. But when you consider the likelihood that a younger person will be exposed to COVID and catch the disease, the calculation changes quite a bit. So Ategi has modeled various different scenarios based on low, medium, and high community spread. And if you look at the situation, so a low community spread in this context is basically what we had last year in every state but Victoria. A medium spread is what Victoria experienced last year. If you look at the low scenario, the numbers are quite clear that AstraZeneca vaccination is probably not beneficial for someone under the age of 40 because the risk of hospitalization for that person is higher 
um, from the vaccination than the risk of them catching COVID and being hospitalized. But the, the context is everything here. Because if we reopen our borders, by definition, the risk of exposure becomes high because we will have COVID cases entering the country. Uh, we will not be quarantining in the same way we, we do now, because that is a primary part of kind of this idea of reopening our borders. And so the risk to even younger people becomes high that they will be exposed to COVID. And so this, is, this presents a kind of hard problem for GPs and for individuals, right? Because you have to, you just got to think about it in terms of the world, you know, is Australia going to have its borders shut forever? Are we going to tolerate this kind of lockdown situation forever? Or are we going to kind of go the way the rest of the world is going where we're starting to open up? Um, and when's that going to happen? And is it going to happen in time for us to wait around for Pfizer? Or should we just go and get an AstraZeneca now? And the other thing is if people aren't vaccinated, then we can't open up our borders. So there's more and more waiting time. And for younger people who may have lost their jobs or, you know, <laughs> have nothing to do in the, these two weeks because, you know, they can't go to work and that's having an impact on their families, mental health, you can kind of see why AstraZeneca might start to look a little bit more appealing, if only from a sort of hopeful standpoint of maybe we can open up again. Yeah, so I think as someone under the age of 40 and also an expert in, in this particular uh, narrow field, I think that both positions are perfectly understandable. I can see the rationale for not getting vaccinated, absolutely, because if you look at the numbers and you make a, a kind of uh, fact-based, a decision based entirely on the facts about health and what the government is likely to do, or the various governments, I mean, it's not even specific to any government um if you if you look at that rationally your risk is probably higher from the vaccination because your risk of catching covid is so low but if we want to reopen which is kind of and and this i think is is where it starts to get more challenging because this is moving away from the atagi guidance which is entirely based on the health facts and this is more about other things that we may value in our society so if we want to travel overseas if we want overseas people to come here and we want various other things such as, you know, uh, having fewer lockdowns in states, perhaps. I mean, that's not necessarily a given with vaccination, but it is something that vaccination may prevent. If, if we value those things which are not necessarily health related, but are uh, kind of lifestyle and economic related, then you might also, I can also see why someone under the age of 40 would say, well, I want that to happen as soon as possible. So I will get my shots now, even if there may be a slightly higher risk to me individually. I think my point with all this is it's all well and good to look at the individual sort of risk benefit analysis. And I think it's very important to look at that. And there's some really great charts that the government's shared where you can look at the benefits and risks based on those three different scenarios of COVID community and transmission but it's also very myopic i just think that the lifestyle and economic factors you're talking about are very important it's, it's quite stressful to be living through something that feels like an apocalypse where our lives have kind of been turned upside down and uh, you see in europe and in america there's ads that have been put out by the government where that's what they're really emphasizing they're showing people going back to sporting events they're showing people going back to the pub and it's all because they can get this COVID vaccine. And that's the way that they convince people to go and get it. It's because this is what you're missing out on if you don't get the COVID shot. And I just, I feel like the messaging here has been 
so confused <laughs> because it's very it's very much based on a clinical technical here's your risk benefit from the individual perspective and just not kind of broadening it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I think it's definitely worth noting that uh from an epidemiological perspective there is no return to true normal with no restrictions until uh, we're all vaccinated. That is just a fairly cold, hard fact. Um, and when I say we're all vaccinated, depending on our appetite for risk and how much spread within the community we are willing to um, accept, the number of people who need to be immunized to prevent spread, particularly with the more transmissible variants like Delta, is somewhere uh, north of 70%. And again, with transmissible variants, we need two doses, not just one. If our aim was simply to reduce hospitalizations and deaths to the point that would be acceptable in the community, uh, like the UK has done before reopening, and accept that that would uh, incur a, a relatively great greater number of cases, even if those cases didn't lead to severe disease, then we could accept a much lower threshold for reopening in terms of vaccinations. But if we say we cannot, we don't want any cases in the community, um, we need to be seeing 75 plus percent of Australians immunized before we can go back to, I guess, entirely normal with open borders, etc. And the other problem is that if a lot of people don't get vaccinated. It sort of has this spill-on effect where people feel more hesitant and they don't feel safe doing it. So there is some benefit to people just jumping in and just doing it. Yeah, I think um, that that's been uh, quite a strong theme overseas. As vaccination programs and uh, rollouts have occurred and spread across countries, more and more people get vaccinated and you see these kind of surveys of hesitancy decline, which I think is very interesting. As your neighbours get vaccinated and you can see that they're fine, uh, that the outlandish claims by certain uh, strident commentators aren't really coming to pass, um, and that they're protected from COVID when your family and you are still vulnerable, I think a lot of people feel less hesitant. Although, I mean, in Australia, vaccine hesitancy hasn't traditionally been a huge issue. Uh, I, I strongly suspect that if there was uh, enough supply of all of the vaccines, we would see that fewer people were hesitant. So, Gid, the other thing we've seen this week is that not only patients are feeling divided about whether they should get AstraZeneca or wait for Pfizer, uh, but GPs also have the same kind of division and there was a survey of about 400 GPs done by Australian doctor which to be fair is is never representative but it is interesting and it showed that there was sort of a bit of a split some GPs said no they wouldn't be giving AstraZeneca to under 60s even after Scott Morrison's announcement um, a few days ago and then that was about 25% of GPs said no they wouldn't and then the rest of GPs said yes they would um, but you can see there's still a that's a pretty significant bunch of GPs who are feeling, no, I'm not going to do do this, probably based on the Atagi advice. I just thought it would be interesting for you to comment on that. GPs clearly are just as conflicted as patients. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, as I said, I think it's perfectly, both. I find both positions perfectly understandable because I can see, particularly to the, to the individual, um, why they might decide... Uh, as a younger person, that the risk of the vaccination is higher than the risk of COVID to themselves. Um, 
and as as we've discussed that's dependent on there not being many cases in the community but given that's quite likely in australia i can see certainly see why gps would say they would rather wait for their younger patients i can also see why uh, faced with younger people who want to protect the community and want to um, move us closer to having a fully reopened country uh, they would say, okay, as long as you accept the risks, I'm more than happy to give you the jab. Uh, those, I think, are both perfectly defensible positions. And I, I think the challenge really is that um, younger people volunteering to get immunized probably won't bring us to the point where we can reopen fully. And so, I mean, I, I've had my AstraZeneca jab. Um, I think it's a laudable thing to do, and I applaud the younger people who are going out and getting immunized. I think it's a powerful statement but from a purely numerical point of view, as you know, if you look at the statistics, there are simply not enough younger people who, who are going to take that proactive step um, and get immunized kind of against the recommendations to bring us to this kind of herd immunity threshold. Absolutely. And I feel like what we're doing is we're, we've got a wall holding a tsunami back. And it's the question is, it's going to come at some point. How do we want it? to come and how do we want to be protected when it comes and the thing that I wanted to address in this podcast is that none of us can predict the future so patients have to when they're making a decision about AstraZeneca if they're under 40 they really have to be thinking about where are we going to be heading and I think right now maybe they don't have enough information about what the government's strategy is because if the government said we're opening the borders next month I think there would be queues a mile long to get AstraZeneca but without any information about where we're going it's very hard to make a decision about what your risk is going to be and how protected you want to be. And... Yeah, it, it is very hard at the moment to weigh up the risks. I agree. Uh, thank you so much, Gid, for coming on our show. My pleasure. It's been good to be on. Before we go, don't forget that you can follow or subscribe to The Tea Room right now by searching for the show on the podcast player of your choice. You'll then be notified when a new episode becomes available. Catch you next time.